from New York, this is Democracy Now! I'm going to return to Brasilia now. I'm going to visit the three sites that were damaged. Be assured that this will not be repeated to discover who financed this, who paid for their stay, and they will have to pay the price under the law. More than 400 people have been arrested in Brazil after supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro stormed the Brazilian Congress, Supreme Court and Presidential Palace in a scene reminiscent of the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Brazil's new president, Lula, has vowed to investigate and prosecute those who took part in what's being called an attempted coup. We'll go to Brazil for the latest. Then we look at Joe Biden's first trip to the U.S.-Mexico border as president. We are really hoping that this will be a turn of event, that the Biden administration will stand on the right side of history to welcome people with dignity instead of using policies to deter them. And Harvard University is facing condemnation after rescinding a fellowship to Kenneth Roth the former head of Human Rights Watch, over the group's criticism of Israel's human rights record. We'll get the latest. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Brazil, supporters of far-right former President Jair Bolsonaro stormed the Congress, Supreme Court and Presidential Palace in the capital, Brasilia, Sunday. Police arrested over 400 rioters as they cleared them from the government buildings after the mob trashed offices, broke windows, destroyed computer equipment and artwork that was on display. The attack came one week after the inauguration of returning President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who spoke following the attack. All those people who did this will be found and punished. They will realize that democracy guarantees the right to freedom and free speech, but it also demands that people respect the institutions created to strengthen democracy. And these people, these vandals, what could we say? They're fanatical Nazis, fanatical fascists. They did what has never been done in this country. Bolsonaro supporters have refused to accept his election loss, and Bolsonaro never formally conceded, instead leaving Brazil for Florida, as some U.S. lawmakers are now calling for him to be extradited. Brazil's Supreme Court ordered all pro-Bolsonaro protest camps around the country to be dismantled within 24 hours, for roadblocks to be lifted, and for police to arrest any protesters defying the orders. The court also suspended the governor of Brasilia, as security flaws around the government buildings are investigated. As nations around the world condemned the attack, the day's events drew immediate comparisons to the January 6th Capitol insurrection in Washington, D.C. We'll go to Brazil for the latest after headlines. In El Paso, Texas, President Biden visited the U.S.-Mexico border Sunday for the first time since taking office two years ago. Biden briefly toured a migrant shelter where did he did not meet with any migrants because apparently none were there at the time. The president instead met with Border Patrol agents, Congress members and local officials, including Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott, who continues to intensify his anti-immigrant hate speech. Abbott handed Biden a letter 
letter with a list of demands on border enforcement. Biden's trip to El Paso came just days after announcing another extension of the Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy to block Haitian, Cuban and Nicaraguan migrants apprehended in the southern border from seeking asylum. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. California Republican Kevin McCarthy was elected House Speaker in the early hours of Saturday morning after a historic 15 rounds of voting. McCarthy was forced to make a flurry of concessions to the hard-right faction of the Republican Party, which will hold significant power in the new Congress. One of the most dramatic moments in the drawn-out process came during the 14th round of voting Friday, when Congress member Matt Gates refused to vote for McCarthy, instead voting present, leaving the embattled Republican leader one vote short of a victory and prompting an angry Congress member, Mike Rogers of Alabama, to yell and lunge at Gates before the Republican was restrained by North Carolina Congressmember Richard Hudson, who put his hand over Rogers' mouth. McCarthy was eventually elected on the 15th ballot with 216 votes to 212 for Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries. Six Republicans did not vote for McCarthy, instead casting present votes, which was enough to secure McCarthy's victory. After the four-day saga wrapped up, McCarthy credited former President Trump with helping him clinch the speakership. But I do want to especially thank uh, President Trump. I don't think you should anybody should doubt his influence. He was with me from the beginning. Somebody wrote the doubt of whether he was there, and he was all in. McCarthy's election meant the House was finally able to swear in lawmakers Saturday. They included New York Republican George Santos, who's being investigated over his finances and for completely fabricating large portions of his resume and life history. Before taking his oath of office, Santos was seen making a hand gesture that many have called out as a white supremacist symbol during the 10th round of voting for House Speaker. New York Democrat Jamal Bowman tweeted, quote, we've all been laughing at Santos for lying his way to Congress. This time it ain't funny. He and every other white supremacist in Congress need to be expelled immediately, Bowman tweeted. As House members prepare to vote on a new rules package today, some Republicans say they will withhold their vote unless full details are shared of the concessions made by McCarthy to the far-right lawmakers. Some of the known deals include allowing a single Republican lawmaker to force a motion to vacate McCarthy's position as speaker, and a provision allowing lawmakers to propose amendments to appropriation bills that could defund programs Republicans oppose. The rules package would also gut the Office of Congressional Ethics, barring it from hiring new staffers while retroactively imposing term limits on members of its board, which would remove three of four Democrats. Republicans also plan to eliminate labor unions of congressional staffers after the Congressional Workers Union negotiated its first-ever contract just last month. China lifted nearly all its travel restrictions Sunday, after three years of relative isolation since the start of the COVID pandemic. Incoming travelers no longer need to quarantine upon arrival. China also opened its land and sea borders with Hong Kong as tens of thousands of people stream to and from the mainland. 
I'm so happy, so happy, so excited. I haven't seen my parents for many years. My parents are not in good health, and I couldn't go back to see them even when they had colon cancer. So I'm really happy to go back and see them now. This comes amidst a massive coronavirus surge in China since the rollback of its zero-COVID policy. The recent spike in deaths of celebrities and public figures has sowed further doubt about the reliability of official COVID reports, even as their causes of death have not been confirmed. 40-year-old opera singer Chulan Lan and screenwriter Ni Zhen, who wrote the acclaimed film Raise the Red Lantern, are among the recently deceased. The U.N. and others have called out Beijing for underrepresenting the country's true COVID death toll after it stopped publishing daily data. Iran has executed two more men in connection with the ongoing nationwide uprising sparked by the December—the September death of Masa Amini while in custody of Iran's so-called morality police. One of the men was 22-year-old Mohammed Mehdi Karami, an Iranian Kurdish karate champion, the other 39-year-old factory worker Syed Mohammed Husseini. There have been four known executions linked to the protest movement, with at least nine other prisoners sentenced to death. On Thursday, authorities arrested reporter Mehdi Baik, who has interviewed the families of death row prisoners. Meanwhile, Iran released prominent actress Tarana Aladusti last week, star of the Oscar-winning film The Salesman. She was detained after voicing support for the protests. In Kenya, a prominent LGBTQ plus activist, Edwin Chaloba, was found murdered and left in a metal box by a roadside near the town of Eldoret. Four suspects have been arrested. Same-sex intercourse is punishable in Kenya by up to 14 years in prison and discrimination against the LGBTQ community is widespread. Edwin Chaloba's sister spoke out after her brother's body was found. He told me this would be the greatest year for him. I did not know that he was going to get killed. I am really shocked. For those people who did it, I pray for justice. I am appealing to the government to investigate this. He was a boy with dreams. In climate news, a new report finds human activity is causing Utah's Great Salt Lake to shrink far faster than previously believed. And then without dramatic cuts to water consumption in the American West, the lake could disappear entirely in the next five years. Since 2020, the lake has lost 40 billion gallons of water each year and now holds just 37 percent of its normal volume. It's currently about four degrees Fahrenheit warmer than it was in the early 1900s. Researchers warn the dry lake bed threatens to expose millions of people to toxic dust that could increase rates of asthma, heart disease and other ailments. Here in New York, over 7,000 nurses went on strike early today after failing to reach a new contract agreement with Mount Sinai Hospital and Montefiore Medical Center. Nurses are demanding higher wages, a stop to benefit cuts, and for more staff to be hired to treat a growing number of patients. The nurses are also denouncing the inhumane treatment of patients, as some have been forced to receive medical care in hospital hallways due to overcrowding. In a statement, the New York State Nurses Association urged people to continue seeking the care they need, writing, quote, we appreciate solidarity from our patients, but going into the hospital to get the care you need is not crossing our strike line. We are out here so we can provide better patient care to you, they said. 
And in Florida, the descendants of black people who survived racial violence in the town of Rosewood gathered over the weekend to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the massacre. Over the course of several days, in January 1923, a white mob raised the homes of black families, murdering at least six people, forcing others to flee. Many eyewitnesses said the true death toll was far higher. The violence began after a white woman accused a black man of assault. In 1994, Florida lawmakers approved $2 million in compensation for nine survivors and dozens of defendants, descendants of the attack. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, they were the only government reparations ever paid to victims of anti-black racial violence in the United States. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Brazil, where thousands of supporters of the former far-right president Jair Bolsonaro stormed the Brazilian Congress, Supreme Court and Presidential Palace Sunday in a scene reminiscent of the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. The rioters, many dressed in green and yellow, the colors of the Brazilian flag, smashed windows, ransacked offices, even set fire to a carpet inside the Congress building. Authorities eventually regained control of the buildings, made over 400 arrests. This all came one week after the inauguration of President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva of the Workers' Party, who defeated Bolsonaro in October. Bolsonaro has never formally conceded the race. Just last week, a few days before Lula's inauguration, he fled to Florida, where he was reportedly met with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Over the past two months, Bolsonaro supporters have blockaded highways and set up protest encampments outside military bases and in the capital to protest what they falsely claim was a rigged election. Lula, who was not in the capital at the time, condemns Sunday's attempt to overthrow his government by what he called fanatical fascists. I'm going to return to Brasilia now. I'm going to visit the three sites that were damaged. Be assured that this will not be repeated, to discover who financed this, who paid for their stay, and they will have to pay the price under the law. Like true vandals, destroying what they found in front of them, we think that there was a lack of security, and I want to tell you that. All those people who did this will be found and punished. They will realize that democracy guarantees the right to freedom and free speech, but it also demands that people respect the institutions created to strengthen democracy. And these people, these vandals, what could we say? They're fanatical Nazis, fanatical fascists. They did what has never been done in this country. Zul's former president, Jair Bolsonaro, responded to Sunday's attempted coup by writing on Twitter, quote, peaceful demonstrations within the law are part of democracy, but depredations and invasions of public buildings like we saw today, like the acts done by the left in 2013 and 2017, are not within the rules, he said. We're joined now by two guests. Michael Fox is a freelance journalist, former editor of NACLA, and host of the podcast Brazil on Fire, the podcast, a joint project of NACLA and the Real News Network. Tiago Amparo is a professor of international law and human rights. Um, he is also a columnist for the um, uh, for. Well, you can pronounce it for me, so I don't pronounce it wrong. Uh, <laughs> professor Amparo. Uh, it's a full at Sao Paulo. It's in the main newspaper in Brazil. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for being with us, to both of you. Professor Amparo, let's begin with you. What 
happened in Brasilia, the capital of Brazil, yesterday? So, um, first thing very much for having me. What happened yesterday was um, a, a, something that unprecedented in our history. Uh, what happened was the invasion uh, of the executive, uh, the presidential palace, um, the House of the Congress, um, and also uh, the Supreme Court floor. Um, so that's, and what happened was a massive uh, invasion of those buildings, a physical destruction of um, historical documents, physical, physical his, uh, destruction of the buildings, uh, the, the whole floor of the, of the Supreme Court was destroyed. Um, and uh, what began um, days after, days before that, uh, over the weekend, uh, several buses arrived to Brasilia to join uh, the protesters that were camping outside of the headquarters of the army um, in Brasilia. Uh, they were there uh, for many months, but uh, since uh, Saturday and Friday, several people had joined the protests and joined um, uh, uh, the, the invaders, and then it became uh, very rapidly, uh, from very abruptly, from uh, protests um, to this massive invasion that was unprecedented in our history. Um, so that's what happened in Brazil yesterday. You have said this is far bigger than the U.S. January 6th insurrection. Mm -hmm. Explain. So um, I would say that uh, there are several parallels, of course, because of the date and also the rhetoric and also uh, one fact uh, checker agency, a fact checking agency yesterday, Agência Pública in Brazil, uh, said that even the hashtag that people were using were, was inspired by um, by the January 6th in the United States. So there are obvious parallels. But on the other hand, the scale is much bigger because uh, uh, if it was in the United States, it, the, it would be like uh, if, if people were invading not only the, the Capitol, the Congress, but also the White House and also the Supreme Court floor and leaving all destroyed. Um, so this is, uh, this is what happened in terms of the scale. Secondly, um, uh, in the United States, they were trying to, at least uh, rhetorically, they were trying to prevent uh, the certification of the U.S., uh, um, uh, election of Joe Biden. In Brazil, what happened, basically, Lula was already certified uh, and was already is already the president of Brazil. Um, so what's the goal of the invaders? It's still uh, under debate, but probably what they are trying to do at first is to show their strength. But secondly, even to overthrow the or, or at least uh, momentarily overthrow uh, the power of the president, uh, Lula. So this is in terms of the um, effect and the goal that they have and also the scale of the what happened yesterday, I would say that it's even bigger than what happened in January 6th uh, in the United States. And the significance of um, Bolsonaro not being there, um, though mm -hmm. they're being called, of course, Bolsonaro, uh, Bolsonaristas, um, but mm -hmm. having fled or you could say flown out of the country a few days before uh, Lula's inauguration, instead of being there to show the peaceful um, transference of power. He flew to Orlando and apparently has since reportedly mm -hmm. met with Trump. He is known as the Trump of the tropics. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so um, it was also part of the strategy because um, uh, first, uh, uh, during the whole presidency, not only during the election cycle, Bolsonaro was uh, spreading fake news about the electoral system and say that it was um, uh, fraudulent. So it was very clear that uh, the president, well, Trump, uh, President uh, Bolsonaro, was even uh, attacking uh, since the day one the electoral system. And uh, it was very clear uh, by the last day, during the last days of his presidency, that he was not con- not clearly saying that Lula won the election. Uh, he, uh, after the election results, he went silent. And a few days before um, the inauguration uh, and the traditional passage of the um, of the mandate uh, in a symbolic act that usually we have in, in on the January first um, of the new president um, uh, in the office, uh, he did not go. Uh, he did not attend this event. He went before uh, a few days before to the United States and stayed there. Um, and one interesting thing that happened also yesterday is that the person responsible. Uh, for the security of the federal district where Brazilian is situated uh, is uh, Anderson Torres. He's a former minister of justice of Bolsonaro. And during the protest yesterday, he, the invasion yesterday, he actually was in the United States as well on vacation. Um, so you see that um, it's very clear that first Bolsonaro was uh, trying to not, uh, was very clearly not not saying that he lost the election. He, for, the, for many years, he was saying that it was a fraudulent election, which was not uh, spreading fake news, uh, and and also the people were very clearly motivated by by his rhetoric of um, challenging the institutions and attacking, especially the Supreme Court um, and the Supreme Court justice that tried to fight against uh, fake news uh, during the election cycle. I'm looking at a piece in the Daily Beast, Michael Fox, uh, that quotes uh, Steve Bannon, the you know President Trump mm-hmm. advisor, um, uh, who wrote Sunday, Brazilian freedom fighters is what he called um, those that are supporting um, uh, Bolsonaro and have laid siege to the Congress, to the Supreme Court, um, to the presidential palace in Brasilia. Can you talk about who's supporting um, these riots? rioters in the United States? Well, the connection between Bolsonaro, Trump, uh, far right Trump supporters, and of course, Steve Bannon. I mean, the connection between Steve Bannon and the Bolsonaro family runs deep going back to even before Bolsonaro had won, uh, you know, back in 2018. It was his son, Eduardo Bolsonaro, who first got in contact with with Steve Bannon. There was supposedly he was then helping uh, Bolsonaro on the campaign trail in 2018. Eduardo Bolsonaro is the head of Steve Bannon's The Movement, his his international far right group to try and foment exactly what's happening in Brazil right now across Latin America. Uh, And in fact, we saw this after the first round and the second round of the elections. Steve Bannon came out just the day afterwards talking about fraud, talking about the electoral machines. He was spewing this same information uh, in a big conference in the U.S. talking about how Bolsonaro was, was going to win if it weren't for the fraud. So absolutely, Steve Bannon uh, and his network has been absolutely backing Bolsonaro and, and trying to, to, to foment exactly what we saw today. And the connections between January 6th, January 8th, it's just so symbolic. You also have one of the January 6th um, riot organizers, Ali Alexander, um, lauding the insurrectionists in Brazil, um, writing on Donald Trump's true social platform, I do not denounce unannounced impromptu capital tours 
by the people. Um, so, so what? If people like Steve Bannon and Alexander um, support uh, Bolsonaro and the activists who are outside and destroying parts of the um, presidential palace, the Capitol and the Supreme Court, why does that matter? How much power do they have? It matters, Amy, because it's not just Steve Bannon. He's part of this much larger far right network. And these people are sharing experiences and they're sharing they're sharing uh, basically, uh, uh, listen, this is what you need to do. This is how we're going to make this happen. And this is exactly what we saw. This is a copycat uh, situation. You had January 6th, you have January 8th, and they're trying to export this type of thing around the world. I mean, this is what Bolsonaro is. He's the Trump of the tropics because he embraced everything that, that, that Trump is and was, right? He pushed uh, fascist uh, ideology, pushed, you know, lies, far right lies and basically everything that that Trump pushed, trying to stir his people up in the streets, trying to push conspiracy theories. Bolsonaro was doing the same thing in the United States. We're talking about the parallels between the U.S. and Brazil run so, so deep. The same idea of, of exporting this kind of culture war into Brazil, uh, which, of course, it happened automatically within Brazil, but also the evangelical movement, the connections. And I talk a lot about this, you know, in my podcast, Brazil on Fire, and these really, really deep connections and how these are being exported abroad on purpose and embraced by Bolsonaro and a far right uh, imagery. Now, what's concerning here, Amy, and the great difference between January 6th and, of course, this situation, January 8th, is is the role of the military and the power of the military historically in Brazil. Of course, the the imagery of the dictatorship is, is was it was not long ago that Brazil had a 21 year dictatorship. It only ended in 1985. Many of the people who are in the streets uh, just yesterday they they look back to that as a time of 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 great wealth they they enjoy the dictatorship they're authoritarian they they want dictatorship which is something that bolsonaro has been pushing since he came into office so it's really important to understand the role that these players are playing that trump and and steve bannon and his allies are playing in the united states and the great impact that this can have abroad um, Professor Amparo, um, if you can talk about what you see is now going to happen. Um, you had the Supreme Court saying that all the Bolsonaro encampments have to be taken down uh, within 24 hours, which at the time of this broadcast is just a few hours from now. What about the role of the military and Lula uh, calling out the military to deal with these protesters? So I think, Emmy, the main challenge here is— um um, there are as a challenge, institutional challenges here because um, the army officials um, and just for the viewers and uh, to understand is that uh, for the past months uh, there are a lot of people camping outside of the headquarters of the army uh, in several capitals um, in Brazil uh, asking for a military intervention and, and, and military dictatorship and things like this um, and so these people were outside there at the headquarters of the army and the army was resisting any kind of uh, forceful way of removing people from those camps. They are, the camps are military areas that should not have gatherings of civilians outside of those areas. Um, so there is a first institutional challenge because the armed officials are resisting um, any kind of intervention by the police and by the authorities in those areas. So just yesterday, after the decision of the Supreme Court, 
uh, right in the uh, in the middle of the chaos, they decided that um, the camps should be taken down. As you mentioned, um, the first reaction of the army in Brasilia was to not allow the police to enter that area. So there, there was a negotiation to allow them to um, enter that area and do their job, which was remove the people from outside of those camps. Uh, a lot of invaders that were uh, in uh, in the capital, that were um, uh, attacking the buildings, they went back to the camps um, and they were allowed to stay in, in the camps. Uh, so there was a ta- institutional tension between the police, the security forces, and the armed officials. Uh, some of them are actually supporters of, of former President Bolsonaro. So there is a challenge on the ground there. But also in the legal accountability, uh, one thing that uh, the Supreme Court is trying to do now is trying to see who paid for it. So basically follow the money in terms of uh, there are a lot of, a lot of buses, uh, more than 100 buses that arrived to the federal uh, to the federal district in the capital of Brazil uh, over the weekend. So who paid for the buses? Uh, even the Supreme Court decision, there is the least of the um, of the numbers of those buses to, to try to define who financed this. Uh, so there is a, a question also not only of removing people from those military areas to not allow for this kind of evasion to happen again uh, for security reasons, but also to, uh, there will be a, a, a lot of discussions about what kind of uh, legal accountability uh, of people on the ground. More than 100 people were arrested yesterday, uh, but also uh, people who financed and people who coordinated this kind of event. Uh, if we saw yesterday some uh, U.S. Uh, lawmakers calling for uh, the president, uh, former President Bolsonaro to be um, expelled from the United States and to face justice um, in Brazil. So there was a lot of discussion on the ground, what's going to happen with those camps, uh, but also the legal accountability of who financed it and who coordinated this kind of event. We just have 30 seconds. Michael Fox, do you think the military could side against Lula? I don't think the military is going to side against Lula. There are definitely sectors of the military that that like Bolsonaro, that would like to stay in connection with Bolsonaro. But at this point, the, the military would lose so much clout. This is clout that it's built over the last 40 years since the end of the dictatorship, and they just don't want to go down that road. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us. Uh, Michael Fox is a freelance journalist, has the podcast um, Brazil on Fire, uh, sponsored by both NACLA and uh, Real News Network. And Professor Thiago Amparo, professor of international law and human rights at FGV and a newspaper columnist, speaking to us from Sao Paulo. This is Democracy Now! Next up, we look at Biden's first trip to U.S.-Mexico border as president. Stay with us.
World Prayer by Shirley Skye. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's in Mexico City for the North American Leaders Summit with Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador and the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. This comes after Biden announced Thursday the United States will start to block migrants from Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela and Cuba from applying for asylum if they're apprehended crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. The move and expansion of the contested Trump era Title 42 pandemic policy set to be reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court. After the announcement, agents on Friday expelled dozens of Venezuelan migrants to Ciudad Juarez in Mexico, across from the U.S. city of El Paso. This is Venezuelan asylum seeker Yonatan Tovar. It doesn't matter where they deport me. I will return because I want the well-being of my children. For them to be able to study, to have the education I never had, I want the President of the United States to give me the opportunity to be here. Mexico. He visited El Paso, which was one of the country's busiest border crossings, in his first visit to the border since taking office two years ago. Ahead of his arrival, border agents and police arrested migrants sleeping outside the Sacred Heart Catholic Church shelter. State troopers have patrolled El Paso's streets since the city issued a disaster declaration last month to address hundreds of asylum seekers and refugees needing assistance. During Biden's four-hour visit to El Paso, he visited a border crossing, walked along a metal border fence, stopped by the El Paso County Migrant Services Center, but reportedly did not meet with any migrants. For more, we're joined by two guests. Gerlene Joseph is executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance, an immigrant advocacy group that provides humanitarian assistance to Haitians and other black immigrants from the Caribbean and Africa. And in El Paso, we're joined by Fernando Garcia. He is executive director of the El Paso-based Border Network for Human Rights. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Fernando, let's begin with you. Can you describe this first-time visit of President Joe Biden to the border since he came into office, uh, who he met with, and significantly, who he didn't meet with. Hi, Amy. Uh, good morning. Listen, I, I think there's a big level of disappointment in, in, here in, the, in El Paso region, but not only within communities, but also NGOs, not only because it was a very short trip. It, I think it lasted—the visit lasted less than three hours— but also in the context where it, where it happens. I mean, uh, as you already uh, mentioned, uh, it, it, there's, there's an announcement by the president that he's implementing this extension of uh, this anti-immigrant pro provision, or uh, this is called Title 42, that is expelling a lot of migrants illegally. Now he's expanding it to uh, Nicaraguans, uh, Cubans, and um, Haitians, uh, along with Venezuelans. So I think in that context, he's coming to El Paso, and he did not meet with any of these impacted communities. Uh, there, there's a lot of Venezuelans in downtown El Paso uh, eager to have a solution for them. And we have hundreds of families there that, uh, that were waiting for some kind of uh, answers uh, to their plea in terms of, us, uh, or, of having some process for asylum or, or refuge. So that didn't happen. So I think there's a level of frust frustrations uh, uh, outraged uh, by by the fact that the president promised a different approach to immigration and, and immigration enforcement, but now he's using Trumpist uh, strategies 
to keep to, to keep expelling people. So I think uh, uh, nobody's happy here in El Paso. So <clears throat> the administration said, even though he was in this uh, refugee relief center, there just didn't happen to be any refugees there at the time. Talk about the crisis at the border right now and his emphasis, which he said he was going to emphasize before, on law enforcement, um, as opposed to the kind of work that you do uh, helping people um, and meeting with— uh, Well, did you meet with President Biden? No, we did not. And actually, uh, uh, not that many people got to meet. I mean, what I'm saying that not that many people is not that many stakeholders actually got to meet to, uh, with the president. I think he did exactly the opposite of what we're expecting, because we were expecting for him to come to visit El Paso, what he was welcome. Uh, we were, we would expect them to come and meet with community organizations, with families. I mean, there was uh, the families. Uh, refugees in downtown El Paso that they are exposed to these freezing conditions right now. I mean, they are they are living in a very harsh environment. They are very visible. I mean, in in in, in especially there's this church that is called Sacred Heart downtown El Paso where they are there actually in the streets. Uh, so the president should just probably just uh, ride by that street along that church and he will see all of these. Uh, situations that actually entails the human humanitarian crisis at the border. And I think either they wanted to ignore it or they didn't care about those families out there in, uh, in downtown El Paso. So I think the president uh, failed in their opportunity to really connect with uh, border residents and migrants. Uh, and it probably seems that was just a, a photo op, I mean, just to do the check mark in the checklist that uh, he already visited the border. But I don't think this this was a substantial, uh, helpful visit. And what would you told him if you had met with him, Fernando Garcia? The first thing is that, please, uh, President, you are not what we believe is that you are not a racist. You're not you're not anti-immigrant. Don't use Title 42. Don't expand it. You were against it. Uh, you criticized it before, and now you expanded it, and, and now you are setting up to, to spell thousands and thousands of people to Mexico, to where there is a lot of violence. Secondly, uh, uh, give the people that is here already, that already crossed the border, an opportunity to find a process for them. I mean, because because you have lead them in the limbo. I mean, you are just offering them expulsions, and there's a lot of families, a lot of children. That they don't know, uh, they don't have a place to go, and, and you're they are suffering a very harsh policy that you, President, are embracing. And thirdly, I think uh, it is very important that the President understand that we need uh, more welcoming infrastructure at the border because whatever we're doing on the ground, NGOs, churches, local cities, is not enough and it's not sustainable. This is something that the federal government broke. I mean, not only this administration, but previous administration, they broke the system, so they need to fix it. I want to bring uh, Gerlene Joseph uh, into this conversation, executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance. Um, and I want to ask you about this program that they've said they expanded in the last days, calling it the Humanitarian Parole Program, saying they would accept um, up to 30,000 migrants per month from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela. But what wasn't talked about as much is they're expelling up to 30,000 migrants a month who cross without applying. Can you talk about what exactly this means? 
Good morning. Thank you so much, Amy, for having me again. Uh, honestly, this is uh, uh, where we once again see they bring a program that is supposed to be welcoming about 30,000 people from the four countries you mentioned, Haiti, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. But in reality, this is causing a lot of confusions because at the same time, uh, the accord between the United States and Mexico is for them to return 30,000 people from those countries back to Mexico if they, if, they, if they try to seek asylum, if they try to seek protection outside of those parameters. And we see that as an extension of the Title 42 that we have been fighting very hard for them to end. So now we have this little carrot where they say, okay, we are going to allow 30,000 people, but at the same time, what does what that policy does, it closes any other avenues for people to come and seek asylum. Finally, um, and we're having a little trouble with your sound, um, but I wanted to ask you, you're in Mexico City right now. Can you talk about—oh, not in Mexico City right now, but you spend a lot of time there, and you um, have been looking at the effects of the policy, particularly on Haitians. Uh, you're one of the only black-led organizations that deals with black refugees, especially Haitians, um, coming up over the border. Can you talk about those that are left behind in Mexico and what happens to them? Right now, if you are in Mexico from those four countries and you try to enter the United States outside of that parole program, you will be barred from entering. You will be returned to Mexico and you will be barred from participating in the future to get that protection that you seek. So what the president said is to wait and stay where you are. But the reality is when you have a woman who was gang raped in a country like Haiti or fleeing Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua in the Darien, and this comes out, they arrive, they have absolutely no way to get protection because what is required for them, they have to have a passport. In addition to having a passport, they have to have a sponsor in the United States who agrees to sponsor them. The reality is this program will be closed to the most vulnerable people, especially those who are in mobility, whether they are in the Darien Forest dying right now, or they are in Guatemala or other places, because if they try to cross any other countries to make it to the United States, they will be barred from even participating in getting any type of protection. Ogerlin okay, Joseph, we want to thank you for being with us, executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance. And thank you to Fernando Garcia. Fernando, if you're still there, I have one last question, and that is, yes, President Biden is now meeting with AMLO, with uh, the Mexican president and the Canadian prime minister in a North American leaders conference right now in Mexico City. Um, what do you think Mexico needs to do um, uh, and what the United States should be partnering with Mexico Round right now? You know, I, I, I'm very sure that Mexico do not have to do the duty immigration enforcement work of the United States. I mean, the, the, this idea that we're going to have 30,000 uh, refugees and migrants being sent to Mexico every month in the midst of this violence, I mean, you heard that there's 
There's violence in Juarez, in Sinaloa, even in Mexico City. So just the idea that we're sending migrants to a very violent situation, it is not a solution. I, I think Mexico should actually stand their ground and say we're not going to accept anything that violates international human rights, that violates the the, the, the the basic right to ask for asylum, which the United States has been violating. So I think they need to adhere to the to, uh, and uphold the, the, the asylum laws that they are broken, they are breaking right now. I want to thank you, Fernando Garcia, executive director of Border Network for Human Rights, speaking to us from El Paso, Texas, where President Biden visited yesterday for the first time as president going to the southern border. Tomorrow we'll talk about his meeting in Mexico. We thank you both for being with us. Next up, Harvard University's uh, Kennedy School of Government facing outcry after rescinding a fellowship to Ken Roth, the former head of Human Rights Watch, over Human Rights Watch's criticism of Israel's human rights record. Stay with us. You've traveled so far and you finally Esperanza Spaulding and Stanley Clark. Spaulding has announced she's leaving Harvard, saying, quote, sadly, what I aspire to cultivate and activate in organized learning spaces is not yet aligned with Harvard's priorities. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Harvard's Kennedy School of Government is facing growing outcry for rescinding a fellowship for the former head of Human Rights Watch, Kenneth Roth, over his criticism and the group's criticism of Israel's human rights record. Ken Roth is one of the most recognized human rights defenders in the world. He headed Human Rights Watch from 1993 to 2022. In 2021, Human Rights Watch made headlines when it published a major report accusing Israel of committing crimes against humanity, including apartheid. In June, Ken Roth agreed to take a fellowship at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy inside Harvard's Kennedy School. But several weeks later, Roth learned Harvard Kennedy School dean Douglas Elmendorf had vetoed the fellowship. Roth was told it was because he criticized Israel. The American Civil Liberties Union has called Harvard's decision to rescind the fellowship to Ken Roth, quote, profoundly troubling. Pen America has also criticized Harvard's decision, saying in a statement, quote, withholding Roth's participation in a human rights program due to his own staunch critiques of human rights abuses by governments worldwide raises serious questions about the credibility of the Harvard program itself, they said. 
Kenneth Roth joins us now from Geneva, Switzerland. Ken Roth, welcome back to Democracy Now! Talk about what's happened, what you understand, why it is you are not um, uh, at Harvard enjoying this fellowship. Well, I mean, as you just said, it's because I and Human Rights Watch criticized Israel. Um, the Carr Center, the Human Rights Center at the Kennedy School, wanted me. They called me up you know, as soon as I announced that I would be leaving Human Rights Watch. And it made sense for me to go there because I'm working on a book and this would be a kind of very logical place for me to try to do that. Um, we thought that that was the end of the story, that the, um, the dean's approval of my fellowship would be you know, a perfunctory matter. It happens all the time. And I was shocked when he vetoed it because of our criticism of Israel. I had a slight inkling of this when I spoke to the dean in July. He asked me, after about a half hour of very you know, pleasant, normal conversation, he said, do you have any enemies? I thought it was a bit of a weird question because, you know, as head of Human Rights Watch, I have a lot of enemies. Um, I, I mentioned to him that, you know, the Chinese government and the Russian government have both personally sanctioned me. Governments like the Saudi government or the Rwandan government hate me. But you know, I knew what he was driving at. So I mentioned, yes, and of course, the Israeli government hates me too. That was the end of the matter. Um, two weeks later, I learned through the very respected professor at the Kennedy School, Catherine Sinkink, that Elmendorf, the dean, had told her that it was our criticism of Israel that was the death knell for my fellowship. And at Human Rights Watch for close to, what, 30 years. Um, talk about Human Rights Watch stand on Israel. Uh, how it compares to Amnesty International's also did a big report on um, Israel as an apartheid state, um, but also your reports on Saudi Arabia and other countries in the Middle East. Well, Human Rights Watch applies the exact same standards to Israel as we do to a hundred other countries that we regularly monitor. That is to say, we insist on scrupulous factual objectivity, and then we apply those facts under international human rights and humanitarian law. So the exact same process we use everyplace else. Um, because there is an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we also, as a matter of principle, scrutinize the other players in that conflict. So Human Rights Watch reports critically on the Palestinian Authority, on Hamas, on Hezbollah, and this is what we do in every other conflict around the world as well. Um, so there's really no difference between what Human Rights Watch does on Israel and every place else. The big difference is that um, there are a group of, you know, organized supporters of the Israeli government, offer, often masquerading around, you know, behind sort of civic groups with very neutral-sounding names, who attack anybody who criticizes Israel. And Human Rights Watch, and me personally, we tend to be at the, the forefront of their attacks. Um, now, I don't think that's what was going on directly with the Kennedy School dean, but he easily could have read their material. Certainly since this decision was announced, um, these same groups have been saying, oh, Human Rights Watch is biased. But you know what they really mean is we hold Israel to the same standards as everybody else. Um, they don't want you know, a few, uh, you know, somewhat fewer reports or maybe fewer tweets by me. They want no criticism of Israel. They want us to exempt Israel from human rights scrutiny. And no credible human rights group could possibly do that. Who do you believe is behind um, the pressure uh, for you, for example, not to be a fellow at the Kennedy School? Do you believe it's donors to Harvard, and what kind of role do they play there? 
I'm not hearing you if you're— Oh, can you hear me now? I'm saying, do you believe donors to Harvard played a role in your rejection as One a second. fellow? No, you're coming back. Hello? Do you believe your role as a fellow? Uh, do you believe that donors' roles uh, to Harvard uh, are a factor in your denial, the, the rescinding of your fellowship? Well, I mean, I have no direct evidence of that, but I think it's the only plausible explanation. In other words, Elmendorf, the dean, he doesn't have a history of defending Israel. I don't think he personally cares. But as uh, Michael Massing showed in his excellent expose in The Nation on this issue, the Kennedy School has a few big donors who are big supporters of Israel. And I think the real fear here is that, you know, either he consulted with them or he feared what they would say but he allowed their preferences to yield to his censorship. In other words, he apparently allowed donors to violate the principle of academic freedom. And, and this is a very serious problem. I mean, it's not just a problem for me personally. This is not, you know, impeding my career in a significant way. But I think about, you know, first of all, the younger academics who don't have, you know, the visibility that I do, who are going to take from this lesson the view that if you touch Israel, if you criticize Israel, that can be a career-killing move. You'll get canceled. And that's a disastrous signal to send. But the other, I think, big issue here is that if there is any institution in the world, any academic institution that could resist this kind of donor pressure, it's Harvard. Harvard is you know, the richest university in the world. Harvard should be saying, we, as a matter of principle, will not accept contributions from donors who insist on violating academic freedom. They are not making that statement. Right now, they're just lying low and leaving us to, to you know, have to surmise that it was this kind of donor pressure that led to this cancellation of my fellowship and this effort to really undermine academic freedom. I hope that Harvard takes this as an opportunity to clarify that donor preferences never will be allowed to violate academic freedom. But their silence so far says the opposite. Peter Beinert had an interesting op-ed in The New York Times in August, headlined, Has the Fight Against Anti-Semitism Lost Its Way? He said, quote, Over the past 18 months, America's most prominent Jewish organizations have done something extraordinary. They've accused the world's leading human rights organizations of promoting hatred of Jews, uh, Peter Beinert wrote. Talk about who these Jewish organizations are. Um, do you think they had anything to do with what happened to you and your own background, uh, your family and relation to the Holocaust? Well, I mean, first of all, me personally, I'm Jewish. My father um, grew up in Nazi Germany and fled in July 1938 to the United States. You know, I grew up hearing Hitler stories. That's a lot of why I went into the effort to defend human rights. It was sort of what I brought from that experience. So, you know, the accusation that I'm anti-Semitic is just ridiculous. But there is a real effort to redefine anti-Semitism, to mean essentially criticism of Israel. Now, they don't say that explicitly. They say, oh, you're, you're demonizing Israel. But, you know, of course, human rights advocacy is about 
demonizing abusive governments. When, when Human Rights Watch reports on abuses and publicizes them, we are trying to demonize governments around the world. That's what we do. That's how we shame governments and pressure them into changing. So to say, oh, we're demonizing Israel, therefore we're anti-Semitic, is basically saying, don't criticize Israel. And, you know, we're not going to fall for that ploy, but it worries me because it's cheapening the very important concept of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a real, vibrant threat. But if it is dumbed down to mean just any criticism of Israel, people are going to stop getting outraged about, about anti-Semitism and think, oh, this is just the abusive Israel government or its supporters trying to defend Israel. That it would be a shame for the effort to combat anti-Semitism. Can you talk about the Belfast Center um, uh, and who uh, is behind the Belfast Center and the role that it has played in shaping the discourse or trying to limit criticism of Israel? Well, Michael Massing in The Nation talks about the Belfast Center, which is, I think, the biggest part of the Kennedy School. Um, it has many, many fellowships of the sort that you know, I was just denied, um, including uh, an Israeli general was given one last year. Um, it is filled with national security types. Now, you know, Michael wonders, you know, were these national security types behind the veto of my fellowship? Personally, I don't think that was it, because Human Rights Watch deals with national security types all, all around the world. They recognize us as, as, you know, a respected institution. We're fact-based. We're principled. They may not like our criticisms, but, you know, we're just an, an accepted interlocutor. So the idea that they would, you know, deal with us every day in Washington, in London, in Brussels, but suddenly veto my fellowship at Harvard, I don't think that's feasible. But, you know, I, there are some donors behind the Belfer Center who are big supporters of Israel. And, and you know, that I think is probably the more likely explanation. Not necessarily that they insisted on this, but that the Kennedy School Dean, Elmendorf, feared that they might object to my appointment. God knows why, because, you know, frankly, my counterparts um, from Amnesty, from Human Rights Watch, have had prior fellowships there, and nobody seemed to care. But Elmendorf seems suddenly ultra-sensitive to the possibility that he might be criticized for appointing me because Israel is among the 100 governments that I and Human Rights Watch criticize. And Ken Roth, now, this, this is, is something that, you know, it has been a problem in other places as well. This is particularly significant Sorry. now, given that Israel now has perhaps the most far-right government in its history. We have about 30 seconds, if you could respond. I mean, what I worry about is that this new Netanyahu government, which has clearly had to placate the far-right in order to secure power— is going to be more repressive than even the Israeli government under him previously had been. And so, you know, this, this apartheid treatment of the Palestinians, I fear, is only going to get worse. And where do you end up, Kenneth Roth? Well, I am writing my book this year. Um, I took a fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm currently um, looking at a few possibilities to begin a, a professorship starting in September. I'll probably decide that soon. So I'm going to continue um, writing about human rights, speaking about human rights, and being part of the cause, just no longer a formal part of Human Rights Watch. Kenneth Roth, former longtime executive director at Human Rights Watch. And that does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Gesner, Messiah Reds, Nermeen Sheikh, to Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnock, Trina Nadira Samuel from Tenere Out Studio, John Hamilton, Robbie Carantoni, Masood, and Mary Condon. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.